You're listening to The Semi-Field Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Dicen que por las noches no más se le iba en puro llorar. Dicen que no comía, no más se le iba en puro tomar. Juran que el mismo cielo se estremecía al oír su llanto. Hola a todos. Bienvenidos al episodio 17 de la Semifield Writer. Soy Leticia y vamos internacional con la revisión de la película de hoy. So, how did I do? Now, I'm not going to do the entire episode in Spanish, mainly because I don't know enough of the language to do it. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. I'm working on it. Get off my back, all right? What I was trying to say is that we are going international with today's film review. We are going to Spain and looking at a film that's more highbrow and more critically acclaimed than, say, Sausage Party. In the early 2000s, I was in college and I had made up my mind that I was going to be a screenwriter. In 2003, I was watching the Academy Awards and this was really the first time that I paid attention to the awards for Best Screenplay, both original and adapted. With the Oscars, I used to care more about the acting and directing awards and less about smaller awards like editing and animated short. I think the average person that watches the Oscars is like that, but this particular year, it was all about the screenplays. And the winner for Best Original Screenplay was, drumroll, Pedro Almorovar for Hable con ella. You know it better as Talk to Her. After that, I was able to get a copy of the film, and I wanted to see if it had a great story, if it deserved the Oscar. It definitely did. It was unlike any film I had seen up to that point. And then I went on a quest to see as many of the films that won an Oscar for Best Screenplay, which is funny because if I was going to determine what a good script was, I would have just read the script. But I didn't do that. Idiot. Anyway, I consider Talk to Her to be one of my favorite films of all time. I haven't been able to find another podcast that has given this film the attention it deserves, so I'm going to do it myself. This will be interesting because all the films I've talked about up to this point have been made in the United States. You have a familiarity with the people and the references I'm making, but I'm not sure you'll recognize the names that will be mentioned here. I have a feeling that I wrote about Spanish cinema in college and should have some knowledge of it, but my memory's a little fuzzy. I'm sure the paper I wrote is probably on the same computer as my very first screenplay. But I will do my best to explain whether some of the elements of Talk to Her are unique, or are just typical of Spanish cinema. So, let's get started. Talk to Her is the story of Marco and Benigno. Marco's lover, a famous matador, is put into a coma after a disastrous bullfight. When visiting her at the hospital, Marco meets Benigno, a full-time caretaker for another comatose patient, a dance student. As Marco keeps his loved one company, he and Benigno discuss their differing views on talking to the opposite sex. Benigno encourages Marco to speak to his lover, even if she is unconscious. Marco believes this to be futile. With a series of flashbacks and the fate of the women, the friendship between these two sensitive men can best be described as odd and bittersweet. 
Talk to Her was released in 2002 and written and directed by Pedro Amolivar. The film stars Javier Camara, Dario Grandinetti, Lenore Watling, and Rosario Flores. Also known as, believe it or not, some Spanish actors have been able to cross over into American film and television. The two best examples that I can think of on the top of my head are Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, husband and wife. Well, you can add Javier Camara to the list because he might be the most familiar to you than any of the other actors. You can see Javier in season three of Narcos. He plays Guillermo Palomari. He is the numbers guy for the Cali cartel. He is also in The Young Pope and The New Pope where he plays Cardinal Bernardo Gutierrez. I'll be honest, I haven't gotten around to watching any of them, so I can't speak to Javier's performances in either of them. I'm sorry. Dario Grandinetti is actually an Argentinian actor. Most of his roles have been in Argentinian productions, with some based in Bolivia and Spain. I looked through his entire filmography, and although he is one of the best actors in his homeland, none of his other films or TV shows have had worldwide success or international recognition like Talk to Her. So this is it. According to us Americans, this is his most notable role. Lenore Watling is a successful Spanish actress, and she has done a number of English language films as well. Here's the coolest project she's done. There is a film called Paris Je Tam. I think I'm saying that right. It means Paris I Love You. It's an anthology film that's two hours long and made up of 18 short films set in different districts in Paris. The short film she was in also featured Miranda Richardson and Javier Camara. Other noteworthy actors and directors that contributed to Paris I Love You include the Coen brothers, Alfonso Cuaron, Natalie Portman, Steve Buscemi, and many, many more. Rosario Flores is better known for her music than her acting. She is definitely a rock star. She is the winner of two Latin Grammy Awards for Best Female Pop Vocal Album. I'm not that familiar with her music. I did listen to some of it briefly, and the best comparison I can make, or the best description I can make, is she's a little like Shakira, except there's less yodeling and hip shaking. But you can find out for yourself. She's got stuff on YouTube and Spotify, so check her out for yourself. Heroes and Villains. This is one of the cool things that I found with the movie Talk to Her. This movie in particular is a melodrama, except it's the men who are pouring out their feelings. They're the sensitive ones that are gossiping, they're going to artsy things like the theater and the cinema, they're crying. It's really wonderful to see. And then you have a character like Lydia, who is probably doing one of the most traditionally masculine professions in the world. She is a bullfighter. And I thought that was pretty cool that they flipped the script on that. Now let me go into just a little bit more detail about each of these four main characters. With Lydia, I was really glad that they didn't draw attention to the fact that she was a female matador. It wasn't constant criticism from people on the outside saying, oh, she shouldn't be doing this. This is a man's game. Things of that sort. That was not an issue at all. It is unfortunate that she got in an accident, but I think that could have happened to anybody. It's a very grueling sport. Most people cared about her love life. And she got into this interesting love triangle between another matador, his name's Nino de Valencia, and Marco as well. So that's where most of the focus is on, and she's the one that's, you know, struggling to figure out who she wants to be with. If there's anybody in this film that you want to feel sorry for, it is definitely Alicia. 
And there's very little that's known about her when you think about it. She is a dance student. She is a little reckless, as indicated by her jaywalking in a very, very busy street. And then she's naive, too, because she leads Benigno to her house, so he knows where she lives. But with the little that we know of her, she's put on such a high pedestal. She's deeply admired by both Marco and Benigno, and she has no say in this. I couldn't imagine when she wakes up hearing about the fallout from what Benigno has done to her, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Now, Marco, he's supposed to be the main protagonist in this film, and although he does show the most growth, I do not feel he is the most interesting character in Talk to Her. He's kind of like us, the audience. We're all observers. He seems very fascinated by the people that he's come across, and we are too. It's why he wants to write an article about Lydia, and he watches how Benigno interacts with Alicia, but it's one-sided. It's only one person talking to the other, but that's the best word I could think of. Anyway, with these relationships that he has with all these other people, it helps him to have a better understanding of his own life, and it keeps him from being entirely alone. Now, Benigno is without a doubt the most interesting character, and he's the most complex. Let's make this clear. He did something pretty despicable. He raped and he impregnated an unconscious woman. He talked of marrying her, even though he barely knew her. He had stalked her before she was hospitalized. We should have known early on that he was a creep, like all the signs were there. One of the first scenes, he's waking up in his own bedroom and he's got a framed photo of Alicia. And it's not while she's awake, it's when she's in her bed in the hospital. So this begs two questions. The first question, was he just crazy? There is an argument for that. He took care of his mother for 15 years and he had very limited contact with the outside world. And once his mother dies, he's unleashed to the world and is able to do anything, even pursue Alicia. He has no boundaries because he didn't learn them. He didn't have a chance to. Now, part of me doesn't think he's entirely a psychopath. And here's why. There's a scene where Alicia's father, who is a psychiatrist, he comes to visit and he asks Benigno his sexual preference. Benigno used to be a client of his. That's why he's asking. And I think Benigno knows that if he says he's straight, that he's into women, that he would be removed from his post. He would no longer be able to care for Alicia, which is really bad news for him. So he lies. He says he's gay. He pretends to be gay so that he's not seen as a threat. He knows that he's doing something bad and does not want people to know what he's in on. And throughout the rest of the film, he's incredibly truthful. He's very honest about his love for Alicia and, and other things. But when it comes to this, he lies. So that brings up the next question. If Benigno is so awful, why do we not hate him? We being Marco and me and the audience that's watching this film. Well, one reason is that Benigno was ultimately held accountable. He was jailed and knowing that he couldn't be with Alicia... He kills himself. I don't condone suicide, but in this instance, he was no longer a threat to Alicia. She would no longer have to worry about him. Also, I did like the way Benigno talked to Alicia. Even though he was really obsessed with her, it was like she was still awake and could hear everything that he was saying. He took very good care of her. He was actually very professional when he was taking care of Alicia. And he was the same way when he came across Lydia in the hospital. And according to the rest of his peers, he does a great job. 
he had the potential to be a decent human being if he had boundaries. And Marco remained his friend even after everything that happened. He knew about Benigno's love for Licia. He even rents his apartment and hires him a lawyer to help him out. Why? Why help him? I think it has to do with loneliness. That was a major theme in this film. All four of these characters are in situations where they are alone. For Marco, he needed companionship. He had been hurt by a former lover. He found out Lydia was planning to break up with him. And I don't think it was desperation that he befriended Benigno. He didn't actually initiate the friendship. It was Benigno. But at the end of it, he accepted Benigno for who he was and took on the bad and the good. So what happened to you, man? Now I'm going to do something a little bit different. Usually I will highlight an actor that has done less work over the years and we're wondering what happened to them now. But instead, I'm going to focus on an American actress. You wouldn't know that she was American once you saw her in this film, but she put on a great performance. And that's Geraldine Chaplin. That name should sound familiar somewhat. She was born in Santa Monica, California. She is the fourth of 11 children to the Charlie Chaplin. She's also the first child of Una O'Neill. An interesting fact, when Geraldine was born, Una was 19 years old. Charlie was 55. Yikes. After a family vacation in Europe, the Chaplin family was not allowed to re-enter the U.S. And if you're a little bit familiar with Chaplin other than his comedy films, you will know that he was very, very critical of the U.S. government. And they didn't like him because of that, because he was so outspoken, and they ultimately deemed him a communist, even though he wasn't, but it was easy enough to do that so they could kick him out. Now, Charlie could have easily applied to get back into the United States. They really had no jurisdiction over keeping him out. But he decided at that point that he was done with the United States. He did not like the way that he was being treated there. So they permanently moved to Switzerland. And that's where Geraldine grew up. And it was there where Geraldine learned both French and Spanish. She followed her father's footsteps and went into acting. And so she was in some very notable roles in the United States, such as Dr. Zhivago in Nashville. But she realized she had more opportunities to act in Europe. She wasn't being typecasted. She wasn't just working with one particular person. So she's done a number of French language films and Spanish language films, including Talk to Her. And it's incredibly impressive because I didn't know that she was an American actress when I watched this movie. I saw her name and I was thinking, that's interesting, Geraldine Chaplin. Is she married to a Chaplin? What happened? And I assumed that with the film, we're not supposed to see her character, Caterina, to be an American living in Spain and, and working in Spain. She's actually a Spanish woman, just like everybody else in this film. And I think it'd be interesting if you had that guy from the Wired YouTube channel, the linguist expert where he's analyzing people's accents and stuff. I'd like him to do one just to Geraldine Chaplin to see how well she can speak all three of these languages. Props to her, man. Let's talk about the soundtrack. First of all, the score for this was composed by Alberto Iglesias, and I thought it was great. Now, I've been a fan of Spanish music. I loved the romanticism behind it. I love the feeling that it gives me. And it worked really well with this film. It was just a little bit of strings, and it captured most of the emotions that you need to hear. It was sadness and love and passion, and it worked out great. I want to bring up a woman by the name of Pina Bausch. She is not a musician. She is a dance choreographer from Germany, and she has two productions that are bookending this film. One of them is called Café Muller, 
and the other is Mascoro Fogo. And it was interesting, and it was pretty clear that these performances were metaphors for what happens in the film, so they support the storyline in that respect. And it's not normal dance choreography that we see in U.S. performances. It's not like you have step one, step two, step three, step four, and you have all these motions that are supposed to go in sync with other dancers. It's more expressionist. It's more interpretive dance. I don't know if American audiences would be receptive to Pina Bausch performances. Because for me, I had never heard of her until I watched this movie, and then I hadn't heard from her since. I know she's big across the world. Almodovar loves her, why he chose her to be part of this film. I bet in New York, though, she might be well-received there. I think they would be more interested in hearing a woman sighing into a microphone to the songs of Katie Lang. But that's just me. Now let me tell you about one of my favorite things in this entire film. It is a song called Kukurukuku Paloma. Now this isn't an original song for this movie specifically. This was actually created in 1954 by a man named Tomas Mendez. It's a Mexican folk song and it's supposed to be sung in a huapango style, which basically means that you have an accompaniment of three or more. If you think of a mariachi song, this would fit perfectly in that style. But that's not how they performed it here. You have a Brazilian singer-songwriter named Caetano Veloso, and he has a three-piece accompaniment made up of a guitarist, a upright bass, and a cello. And they make it sound more like a ballad. And it's one of the most beautiful songs that I've ever heard. Caetano Veloso has this wonderful voice. He is so delicate with the lyrics. And I don't even know what he's saying. I don't know the lyrics. I know the song is about lovesickness and the title of it is about what a bird would say. That's about it. But it doesn't matter. It's beautiful. I get the emotion that's supposed to go behind this. You might be familiar with the song too. The song has been performed by numerous artists and it's been in several films. If you've ever seen Moonlight, you might have heard this song and I think it's the exact same arrangements, the same singer, same instrumentation. And so maybe you can vouch for me when I say that this is a wonderful song. I did find out that this song was also featured in a rom-com called The Five-Year Engagement. I've never watched this film, but I caught this scene where it's Chris Pratt. And this is before Guardians of the Galaxy and Jurassic World and Superstardom. This is Parks and Recreation years. He is getting married. He's at his ceremony and he decides to sing a song for his bride. He sings Kukurukuku Paloma. And it's one of the funniest things that I had watched. He's trying to sing it, and I think he's trying to be serious, but he sort of exaggerates the way he moves his mouth and the microphone. He's trying to be serious, but I don't think it was supposed to be serious. I think it was meant to be really, really funny, and it sure was, and I loved it. Best scene, worst scene. There's a few scenes here that I really liked, and I was trying to narrow down what I wanted to mention. I'm going to group these two as one. It's prepping of the women is the best way I can describe it. Early on in the film, you see Alicia get a sponge bath. She's getting cleaned up by the nurses. And so they're going into detail on how they're cleansing her from head to toe. And then later on, you have Lydia who's getting prepared for one of her bullfights. And so she's putting on every single piece of her outfit from the socks into the pants and the way that it gets all buttoned up. There's something wonderful about seeing both of these because they were kind of like rituals. And there's a, a reverence to how you see these things being performed with both of the women. Also, it tells a story about each of them. 
with Alicia, it could have been easy to just say at that point, oh, she's in a coma, she has been for four years, and so she's getting round-the-clock assistance. But no, you can just show it. They're showing that even Alicia can't do even the simplest things such as bathing herself. Someone has to do it because she is in a coma. Same thing with Lydia. When she's putting on her pants, her abdomen is exposed and you can see scars. You don't have to go and tell someone, yeah, she's a bullfighter and it's a dangerous sport and so she's gotten injuries before. Just show this process. It's wonderful. The other scene that I really liked is the final one between Marco and Benigno. Marco goes and visits Benigno. They're both keeping secrets at this point. Marco is sworn to secrecy that he cannot tell Marco that Alicia has woken up from her coma. And Benigno's planning to kill himself, but he's not going to tell Marco about that. But what was nice is that Benigno is having a moment with Marco. He shows that he cares about him as well. It's not all Alicia all the time. And so when he comes in and he's coming out of the rain to go visit him, he tells him, you know, when you go home, get some more milk, put some honey in it. And then later on, Marco is saying, you know, I wish I could hug you because that's something that Benigno needs at that moment. And then Benigno quips and says, well, I'd have to request a vis-a-vis, which means a conjugal visit. And then I'd have to tell him that you're my lover. And Marco's like, I'm okay with that. I don't care. And they have a laugh. But it was just very touching that this was a genuine friendship between these two men. And it was really nice to see, even though it was going to be tragic after that moment. For the worst scene, initially, I was going to say the silent film, The Shrieking Lover, was going to be my least favorite scene. And it's really not because the way they made that silent film was pretty excellent. It was a nice homage to the silent films that they were successful at early on in the 1920s. And the production of it made it look like it could have come out of that era. I think why I almost wanted to consider it to be my worst is because at a certain point at the very end, it got a little ridiculous for me. You have the shrinking lover who's like maybe two inches tall. He removes a blanket from his, I don't even remember what her name was. But he removes this blanket off of her and she's totally exposed and naked and he reaches the Mecca, her vagina, and he ultimately enters into this canal and he lives there forever. And it is kind of jarring to see like this giant replica of a woman's crotch. But the fact that these actors all just committed to this was pretty incredible. Still funny and I don't know, but it served its purpose and that's fine. But here's the worst scene that I think. It's Marco talking to Alicia before he leaves on a work assignment. He's actually leaving the hospital for good. And there's nothing wrong with him talking to her, even though she's not listening. It's the fact that she's topless again. Now, I'm not a critic of all the nudity. I'm okay with any of the nudity that was shown in this film because it served a purpose. And I know that the European sensibilities, the way that they see sexuality and the naked body is much more accepting the way us Westerners see it. We're still very conservative. We still feel very uncomfortable about showing off their bodies like that. And that's fine. I just felt like the reason why she is topless in that scene is because both Benigno and Marco mentioned that her boobs are getting bigger. And that's a foreshadowing because she's pregnant. But you don't need that because right after Marco leaves, the nurses are talking about the fact that Alicia is Mr. Period for a couple of months. So it is also telling you that she is pregnant and things are going to get crazy in just a little bit. So it was something that really just wasn't necessary. Best line, worst line. Let me let me give you the, the little bit of dialogue and I'll explain why I felt like this was the best line. 
So in a flashback in the beginning, Lydia says to Marco, we should talk afterwards. Marco says, we've been talking for an hour. Lydia says, you have, not me. There's not much context in there. This is something that you could brush off and not think of this as a big deal. All you know right at that point is that Lydia and Marco are now in a relationship. They're holding hands and that's it. Later on, they go back to the scene, but then they add more context. You'll find out that Marco had just come from his ex-girlfriend's wedding. And he had spent an hour talking about her and the relationship that he had with her. And Lydia doesn't get a word in edgewise. And it's not until later in the film where you realize what Lydia wanted to talk to Marco about, but never got the chance to she was going to break up with him because she got back together with Nino de Valencia. So I really liked how you took this line in the beginning and you don't give much context to it, but this line of dialogue just carries more and more weight as the film progresses. And it leads to some damaging news to Marco. And I thought it was great that there was this development with just these little bit of lines. Now the worst line happens when we first meet Lydia and she's doing her interview on TV. There's the host who is trying to bring up Lydia's lover, Nino de Valencia, and that's her ex at the time. And Lydia's adamant that that was not up for discussion. And the whole time, this interviewer is wanting her to bring it up and, and to discuss it on live TV. And this is what she says. And I am one of the few who dare say the truth, and you should dare accept that Nino Valencia took advantage of you. He shared with you not only the fame, but sex as well. And he left you when the time was right. And all the while she's saying this, she's yanking Lydia to stay on the couch. Lydia's trying to leave, but she keeps getting pulled back and pulled back. And this interviewer is about to fall off the couch because she's begging this woman to open up to her feelings to everybody as if she cared for her and felt like it was for her own good. Now, that was intentional. That was supposed to be a negative thing going on here because Amorovar says in his commentary that he's, he's very critical of the media and he thinks it's trash and he thinks that there's no substance to TV personalities doing these salacious interviews. So that was on purpose. And it is funny to see that. And I don't know if that's typical of Spanish TV where these personalities are kind of breaking boundaries here. Because I think of American interviews where if someone's uncomfortable and wants to just leave, the other interviewers try not to be even more embarrassed. And so they're sitting there and, you know, just taking it. I don't imagine any one of them just trying to like pull someone and begging them to come back and keep talking. Very unprofessional. True facts about Talk to Her. Let me mention first the other nominees for Best Original Screenplay. I apologize I didn't write down the names of the writers of any of these, but they were from Far From Heaven, Gangs in New York, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and Ito Mama Tambien. That's a great list there. Some, some of those films are fire. Now here's what's interesting. There's always a correlation in the Academy Awards where the people, I was going to say men, it should be men because they're mostly men, but the men who are normally nominated for Best Director their films are also nominated for Best Motion Picture. Amorovar was nominated for Best Director, not for Best Picture. The ones that were nominated for both were Gary Marshall and Chicago, Martin Scorsese and Gangs in New York, Stephen Daltrey and The Hours, and Roman Polanski for The Pianist. That fifth movie that was nominated for Best Picture, not nominated for Best Director, 
Peter Jackson, and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And here's the other thing that was interesting. Talk to Her was an incredibly successful film, yet Spanish cinema did not offer that movie up as their selection for best foreign language film. They actually selected Mondays in the Sun. I haven't watched it either. You know, with movies at the end credits, they put a disclaimer saying no animals were harmed during the making of this film. Well, there was an animal harmed in the making of this film. The first bull that Lydia fought actually died. And there was like a animal activist group or somebody that was trying to protest the movie and wanted to boycott it because of this cruelty to animals type thing. But nothing came of it because the owners of that bull gave consent. They gave permission for them to use this bull and to kill it. The word Lydia is actually Spanish for bullfighting. And that is why in the beginning of the film, Marco tells Lydia that she was destined to be in that profession. And there's a curtain that shows up at the very beginning of the film, right before Café Muller starts up. And it's actually the exact same curtain that's at the very end of Amorovar's previous film called All About My Mother. And the reason he did it that way was because he really got international acclaim. He got recognized everywhere because of All About My Mother. But he was worried about the pressure of his follow-up films after that. And so what he was trying to do keep doing what he was doing and not try to please other people or have to be more ambitious than he needed to be. That was his way of doing that was ending all about my mother with the curtain and then having that to be the begin of talk to her. It's just a continuation of the films that he's always wanted to make. It's not like they were in the same universe. I don't know about that, but it was an intentional transition from one movie to the next. The one thing that I found very interesting about this film, the scene where Marco's ex-girlfriend gets married, the day that they shot that scene was September 11th, 2001. I don't have to explain to you what happened that day, but it scared everybody on this planet. Not just Americans, but Almodovar himself said that he was stunned to hear this news. People had no idea what was going to come after that. People were scared, rightly so. And there was a moment where they felt like they needed to halt production and to go homes, be with your family, and see what's going to happen next. Almodovar's concern for that was that if they took a small break, even for a day, they would never get this film made. He was worried that if they had stopped for just a moment, they would never finish this film. So the plan there was to continue shooting, and he really tried to encourage his cast and his crew to just for a little bit pretend like nothing was happening, that the world wasn't on fire that day, because that was the only way they were going to get through this film. He had to make a choice, and he decided that the show must go on. Suspender disbelief. Now let me tell you about two things that when you watch this film, you would think, oh, that could never happen in real life, but they did. And then I'll tell you about a couple of other things that I had a hard time believing myself. As I mentioned before, Bullfighting is considered more of a masculine profession. You mainly see men as matadors. There are female bullfighters that exist. I mean, there was an attempt to ban them and to keep them from competing with the big boys. In Spain in particular, they were keeping women out of the sport altogether and pushing them out and going to other countries if they ever wanted a shot. And it wasn't until the mid-90s where you had your very first female matador which is the cream of the crop as far as bullfighting goes. But they do exist. Now, when you see in the story that a woman who is unconscious, who is in a coma for four years, gets raped and she gets pregnant, 
and you think, that could never happen, that sounds outrageous. Well, you know what? That actually happened. I don't know if you guys remember over a year ago, this happened at the Hacienda Healthcare Center in Phoenix, Arizona. A woman who has been in a coma, or who was in a coma for 14 years at that time, gave birth to a baby boy. And what was crazy is that none of the staff had any idea that she was even pregnant. She went the full nine months, nobody saw any signs, or they just weren't paying attention, they were crappy at their jobs. But she gave birth to a little boy. And they did DNA tests on all the men and they found the one nurse who was the culprit and so he's in jail now. And now I saw a mugshot of this guy. Clearly he is crazy. He's no Benigno. He is without a doubt crazy. Now the prison where Benigno stays at in Segovia, I almost thought that that was what every prison was like in Spain. Everything looked clean. The staff seemed nice. Benigno seemed to be in a good situation. And I thought that was just indicative of how they felt about their prison system and how different it was from the American prison system. But that's really not the case. It was a new prison and Almodovar wanted it to be that space where he had Benito in prison because all of the other places like in the city and in other urban areas were pretty seedy and dirty. And that's not what he wanted. I also feel like the reason he chose this prison is because you want to make it clear that the only reason Benigno is committing suicide is because of Alicia. You know of many stories of prisoners who are in such awful situations. They're getting beat up and raped by other inmates. They're eating awful food. They're in solitude. It's a very awful place to be in. But he doesn't have it like that. He actually has it pretty good. It's only that Benigno cannot be close to Alicia anymore. And that's why he takes his life. Now, one thing that I couldn't quite get behind with this film is how Marco found out everything he needed to know about Alicia. So through the nurse that works in the hospital, the one of the doctors that took care of Alicia and the lawyer that he hires, he was able to find out that Alicia was raped by Benigno. She got pregnant, gave birth to a stillborn baby and woke up from the coma. Now, there's a certain point where they couldn't disclose where she was at, but Marco found out on his own. But I feel like they wouldn't have told him any of the other information. I feel like that violates some privacy laws. And also you find out that the public has no idea what had happened to Alicia, that she had this awful thing happen to her. News outlets don't come out. They're not interviewing the landlord or anybody else. So it was very clear that Alicia's father wanted to keep this private. And so I don't know why the others did not hold that same amount of privacy. It could have just easily been done with Marco finding out that Benigno was in prison and just getting the entire story from him. I'm sure Benigno would have been a little bit more biased and spun the story a little bit, but I don't know. I just, I just couldn't get behind that. If they remade the film today, what would change? I don't know if you could do much to change this film. I think it would be interesting to see Benigno be a little bit more malicious. Like, maybe he's not outright crazy, but he's definitely more subtle in showing his affection towards Alicia. He wouldn't outright tell even his closest friend that he wants to marry an unconscious woman. Things of that sort. What I would also be interested in is seeing what would happen if they extended that story a little bit longer. Because the way it ends, you're to assume that a new relationship is blossoming, and it's going to be between Marco and Alicia. But I have three questions regarding this. The first one, will Marco tell Alicia the truth about Benigno? 
It sounds like he wants to be open about everything. He thinks it's a simple story, but how would Alicia take it if she finds out that Benigno stalked her and took care of her for four years and ultimately raping her? And then also finding out that Marco was a good friend. He was sort of complicit and is now even living in the same apartment that Benigno used to live in. I don't know how she would take it. The second question, even if Elisa wanted a relationship with Marco, would her father even allow it? She got violated in the worst way possible, and he would not trust another man to be around her. Here's a third question. What if Alicia's actually a bitch? You know, like I was saying earlier, there's little that we know about her, and she's so admired by these other people. And then once she's now conscious again and is starting a relationship with whoever, then you find out that she's selfish and manipulative and you know, she's crazy herself. And so all of this was for nothing. I don't know. But that's what I think about when I'm watching this film. That's all I have for today. I was really surprised in the beginning. I was nervous that I wouldn't have enough information to work with as I was putting together this episode and this review. But I did a lot of my research. I saw the commentary with Almodovar and Geraldine Chaplin, and I got a lot of useful information out of it. And it's almost 20 years later. I still love this film. It was great rewatching it again. And keep in mind, too, that I grew up in a very small town in Texas, and I was never exposed to these kinds of films when I was growing up. We didn't have art house cinemas. I didn't know movies in other countries really existed, except for the ones I saw in Del Mundo. And it wasn't until college where I really got exposed to cinema that comes from all different people from all different nations. And this was the first international film that I saw that really moved me. And I feel like I'm a better person and I feel like I have more growth in me because I've come to watch this film. You can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com. And I'm also on Twitch and Instagram at semifieldwriter. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an excellent two weeks and I will talk to you again real soon. Adios.